Honeybees. Honeybees. Okay. Yes, we do. Here we go. Yeah, okay. Right. Are you sure? Do we have to? <laughs> do we have to talk well, about this? We need the, to. the first few chapters are good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. All right, here we go. Are you trying to play music? Was it not working? It wasn't working. That is correct. Oh, it's because the I had the noise suppression turned on. That's why. Oh. Stop suppressing your noise. <laughs> yeah. Hello and welcome to good-looking people in small, clever rooms that utilize every centimeter of available space with mind-boggling efficiency. We're back after a one-week hiccup in our release schedule, during which time Brianna and I donned masks and traveled a long distance for a small wedding in the mountains. But we're back and reading about an unmitigated fiasco. (laughs) I'm Andrew, and I'm here with Brianna. Hola. As always, we're joined by my mom, Norma. Hi. And by our friend, Vinny. Bonjour. (laughs) (laughs) so um we're gonna we're gonna get into the fiasco but there's this little um prologue that's like the the end of the previous chapter where we get more into mario Mm -hmm. Um, thank goodness yes could i just say i there were things right away right at the beginning of that that i don't know if they mean any if they're consequential or not but they Mm -hmm. all made me say huh Okay, <laughs> let's let's go through those. Yeah. Uh, like it describes Avril when she was pregnant and didn't know it, and it said she threw up some mornings, but who didn't in those days? Yeah. yeah. What's that supposed to mean? Is that like a consequence of pollution like with annular fusion oh, waste or something? Like is are we to believe that that like that is the root cause of the feral hamsters and the giant infants and maybe all these unusual like birth defects that people physical birth defects that people have yeah yeah i I think that's the most reasonable um conclusion anyway so a small thing but still made me wonder the next was, it's described as, it was on a metal-lit November evening. Metal-lit? Metal-lit? Does that just mean the light had a particularly, like, steely gray quality to it or something? Oh, yeah. And then the other thing was the end note 114, which I think happens very early on. Uh, the man from Glad? Uh, yes, where it says... The year of glad is the last year of subsidized time. The very last year of Onanite subsidized time. Yeah. Mm. And that's next year. That is. That seems very ominous. Much of the story is happening, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think that a lot of the (laughs) a lot of the narrative uh, work being done in this book, or like for all of the book that we've read so far, is just like putting us. And all the characters in the book on this, like, inevitable precipice. Yes. Yeah. Dread. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's just another thing to dread now. Some, some kind of cataclysmic, like, does that mean that Onan is, is going to collapse in a year? 
Or mm. does it mean that somebody says this whole idea of subsidized time is stupid? I mean, that would be... And they go back to, like, regular, our, our more traditional way of naming years? That would be, like, the best possible outcome. It doesn't Absolutely. seem likely, but... No, I think it's more yeah. likely that something bad is about to happen. Or there mm. isn't time after that. Mm. Is Onan, does Onan collapse, or is there not time after you know, they, they, well, they talk well, about... We know what not having dread. time is like. <laughs> I mean, they talk about uh, taking DMZ as being like, what's that thing about being a, a futurist Italian sculpture with time coming off of you in waves and like the experience of time is different? Uh-huh. Mm. Right. Kind of like quarantine times. Okay, mm. thank you. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we yes. live in a post-time world. Yeah, we do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> On 313, that first paragraph that uh, starts with, he had to be more or less scraped out, Mario, mm -hmm. like the yeah. meat of an oyster. I just wrote in the margin, oh boy, there's a lot going on in this paragraph. Yes. Mm -hmm. Just, there's just so much in that paragraph. And I... I think I, I get that it's trying to give us a lot a lot of context all in one all at one time, but at the same time I was overwhelmed. Yeah, there there is a lot there. Yeah. Um uh, we we find out that Mario is named after James O's grandfather, who made a small fortune by inventing X-ray specs. Who was the man that was, it was James O's father that w had the job as the man right. from GLAD. Yes. Yeah. Um. Which is also, of course, makes you go, hmm, since we know that there's a year of GLAD. Right. How does one get, how does one get the rights to name the year? Does that, can that possibly be a coincidence? Unlikely. I don't know. I'm I'm leaning it seems towards like a it because to because me. his he's he would have just been a spokesperson. He would have been like a paid actor. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. like the gr Jolly Green Giant. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That that actor oh, oh, does not oh. negotiate. Right. The the company's the naming of the year. Yeah. Right. No, but there's an incandenza connection to Glad. Yeah, they all. do seem to be everywhere. The incandenzas or the glads? Uh, the incandenzas, mostly. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I want my last yeah. name to be Glad. Glad. <laughs> Brianna Glad. Um, eh, I don't know if it works. We get, <laughs> we get certainly a much more complete description of just... Mario's physical challenges. Yeah. Yeah. A bigger, better maybe picture of just like what he looks like. Like they mentioned how tiny he is. Yeah. He's a really very, small very small. Um, his really withered arms. Mm-hmm. Just surgically reconstructed eyelid. Mm -hmm. And they also talk about that uh, Brady, more about the Brady is it Brady slow Brady? Yes. That, yeah. that thing, Brady yeah. everything. And that it, it kind of clarifies again, um, 
that it do, that doesn't mean that he's intellectually slow. It just means uh, he's slow mentally, but not cognitively damaged. Yeah. Um, somewhere it says it's more like he's refracted. I love that. That's like, that's that's Hal's view of Mario. That he's. Uh-huh ever so slightly epistemically bent a pole poked into metal water and just a little off and just taking a little bit longer in the manner of all refracted things. Right. And it kind of explains that Brady, uh, condition Mm -hmm. as being it, it, that everything is slowed down. It doesn't mean that you can't do it or that you're not thinking or that you can't understand. It's just that any response is going to be slow coming mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. Not that it's not there. Right. We also learned that Oren was a bullied Mario. Yeah, some did like really abused him, him, him in some awful ways. Yeah. Um Although they say that he, Mario practically doesn't feel pain. Right. So maybe Oren wasn't being mean. Maybe he was just being scientific. Like, are you sure you don't feel anything? It's possible to be both. Are you sure you don't feel Mm -hmm. this? Right. He and James O. were inseparable. Uh Uh, And and he he seemed to always accompany James O. on his filmmaking projects. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. Yes. For most of the last three years of the late blooming filmmaker's life, uh, he also occasionally tottered out for a bright red plastic bottle of something called Big Red Soda Water and took it to the apparently mute, veiled graduate intern down the motel's hall. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Apparently mute, veiled graduate intern Joel Van Dyne. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In that same little spot, I think it says something about, I had a note that it's like, it says he and his father had been, no pun intended, inseparable. What did they mean by that? I think they mean the way that uh, his fist was inseparable from his face at birth. Mm-hmm. Oh, Okay. Um, there's also, some other re- really lovely, like descriptive language about Mario. I, th- I feel like this section is, uh, it takes pains to, to depict him as a person with kind of innate dignity. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another mention here of him lurching gamely, but not pathetically to keep up with his father's strides, carrying the lenses inclined ever forward, but in no way resembling any kind of leashed pet. Right. So they had a, they really did have a lovely relationship, mm-hmm. James O and Mario. Mm-hmm. And yet, um, I keep wondering if is James O really Mario's father? I certainly Ooh. have my doubts. Uh, it, at some point in this description of him, it describes him as having thin, lank, slack hair like CTs. Yes. And also, they describe Mario as having skin that is like khaki colored mm-hmm. and somewhere mm. it also uh, described ct's skin that way mm. oh yeah i mean that that would maybe explain why ct seems to be silently obsessed and kind of repelled by mario uh-huh 
also makes it interesting, though, that like that part that you read about uh, Mario and James O. Yeah. Interesting that James O. embraced him completely. Right. And, and maybe seemed to never even have harbor any suspicions. Or he didn't care. Or he didn't care. That's also possible. Yeah. Um, I suspect it's that he didn't care um, because his mind was perhaps elsewhere. Uh-huh. Uh, when when Andrew and I were talking about this, like, way, way... Oh, wait, that was two weeks ago. Um, <laughs> he told me, so that part that I read ahead, it it says a lot of stuff about Mario. And I'm like, oh, no. And then we had a conversation about, well, interesting how close in uh, birth time hal is to mario mm-hmm. yes mm. and they're they're very far behind Orin. right and so yeah. i had the question about whether we think that hal was like a consolation baby <laughs> like mm-hmm. i'm sorry i cheated uh-huh. on you with my half brother uh-huh. here have hal that does here seem entirely hal. possible mm. um i did think that we in this flashback to um Avril about to give birth to Mario, we see what's maybe more direct emotional expression from James O than we've seen anywhere else in the book mm-hmm. where mm. um, she collapses on the staircase and he remembers right. that his own father dropped dead on a set of stairs. Uh-huh. Um, her husband looked down at her paling. Uh, what is it? Wait, right. wait, 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 wait. And then we also get some more information on Mario's camera setup. Yeah. Um, yeah, which, again, I kind of had the question, uh, which I'll pause to the group, of why Mario shoots on film. If this is <laughs> something that Mario does um, intentionally as a means of, you know, artistic expression and things like that. Or if it's because um, Wallace couldn't really think of a digital film or digital films being made or anything like that. So, yeah, I've been thinking about this. So this is it's described as a trusty old Bolex H64 Rex 5. Um, so that's the end note where it also says that the camera was made in Quebec just weeks before its manufacturing facility was annularly hyperfluoriated. So this is like, um, I'm imagining the, the same like runaway growth that causes giant feral toddlers could also affect plant life and, Mm. and maybe, maybe that's what it's referring to, like giant plants and, overran it yeah overran the factory um yeah it's interesting that that's like it follows roughly the same timeline as as, uh payard uh cinematique actually going out of business in real life for very different and in real life more boring reasons (laughs) (laughs) um uh but yeah so i in the reference chat i pasted in a picture of uh, Bolex's H16 Rex 5, which is, I think I've showed a picture of before. It's uh, what they're mo- the camera they're most known for, probably. Um, mm-hmm. 
the in this case the 16 would refer to the film gauge i don't think that's possible here because if it were really a 64 millimeter film stock that would have to be an enormous enormous camera um yeah so i think the 64 probably uh refers to just kind of a new digital line or something um there's nothing in here that explicitly says that he shoots film uh and and i think it more points to some sort of a digital imaging system I will give David Foster Wallace credit for, um, for for having the nuance to not assume that Mario would be using like an advanced version of a VHS camera or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, like, like he, he he grasped that cinema production has different needs than the needs that are filled by video cameras or were filled by video cameras at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think he just couldn't quite get there to like how how a camera like that would actually work which isn't well, surprising how- like I, I don't think anyone maybe outside of kodak uh or a couple other or like panavision was having thoughts like that in 1994 right yeah i when i look at i've looked at this camera before i think you've shared it and i just keep wondering so how is it possible that how is it possible for Mario to use it? It yeah, just seems I mean, like it has so many settings and so many, and it's mounted well, on his head for goodness sake. So how, and he doesn't, his arms are too short to reach up and grab it. And it's also very tall. So I had questions about balance. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas if it were a flatter or more square, less rectangular mm-hmm. design, then maybe I could understand how he balances. He already has balance issues. Dangerous. (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, it sounds like it was very specifically designed for his body and mind. So it was probably braced and counterbalanced in such a way that he could hold it. Um, The more I think about this, though, the more I think that uh, it makes sense to imagine this camera as just a box with an image sensor and some kind of recording device in it. Um, I'm going to send along another picture here. This is not related to Bolex at all, but this is called the SI2K Mini. was the mm-hmm. first like mini digital cinema camera that came out years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, it's okay, so cute. Yeah. Which really is just a lens mount and a sensor. And this one doesn't have onboard recording. It just has output and has an output for, to a recorder and an input for power. Um, I could imagine something like this being the way that this camera works, that like all the controls are are done remotely and electronically. Um, yeah. yeah. It, there's, a, there's a mention of, of that foot treadle that he uses as a start-stop right. Yeah. Right. device. Mm-hmm. Um, so does he just focus before he puts it on? Uh, I think, I, again, I think you can imagine an electronic focus motor on the lens. Um, I mean, or, or maybe even autofocus. Fancy. My question is, how can he even put it on? Well, I think I think he probably needs some help with it. Um, the The positioning of it makes a little more sense to me now that I've read this because I was imagining it like mounted to the top of a helmet. Right. But this description mm. makes it sound more like it's it's strutted to the top of a helmet, but it's suspended in front of his face and like mm-hmm. braced oh. to his shoulders. Oh. oh. Um, okay. Which would allow him to look through okay. the viewfinder. Okay. 
Um, that doesn't make Interestingly, the, 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 the Rex 5 designation would imply that this camera has an optical viewfinder rather than a digital viewfinder, um, mm. which I think is really intriguing. And, uh, and I would like, you know, I'm, I'm very sad that optical viewfinders are gone because they're, they're better. Um, <laughs> it feels like it's been designed um, really kind of lovingly, probably over a long period of time uh, to, to get it to work just right for Mario. And that was all James O, right? I mean, he. I'm a little. It's a little this, unclear well, this, to me. This camera was left to him in James O's will, so he didn't have it. I mean, he didn't. They didn't have it. I think. Yeah, it yeah. was. It was on order or something. Oh yeah, or, himself had designed and built and legally willed in a codicil to be gaily wrapped and forwarded for Mario's thirteenth Christmas. Yep. A trusty old Bullock's H sixty four. Um. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great gift. Mm-hmm. This maybe one of the few purely generous things that James O has ever done. <laughs> right. It makes you wonder, so what was it what is it about Mario that made his relationship with himself so different from the others? Yeah. I, I don't mean to be cynical, but I think that maybe it was his physical inability to play tennis. Uh-huh. Mm. Uh huh. Forced James O to like reconsider but who Mario he... was and and what yeah, he wanted for seem... Mario. It doesn't seem right though. It seems like to me the other things that I that I think I know about James O. I would think that if it was as simple as he's not, he obviously can't play tennis. I would think that he would just dismiss him. Just not pay much Maybe, attention to him. But also it. like also just generally very low expectations for Mario mm. might have might have been a contributing factor. Why would he even let him tag along? I uh, it would take a lot of patience. He has to probably. He goes slower. He wants to, you know, be involved with what's going on. It's 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 a totally different side of James O. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know that Mario requires that level of consideration because it seems like he is defined by his ability to make people feel comfortable and useful without making himself feel like a burden to them. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, so I don't know that I don't know that he impo- his identity allows for other people to feel like he's imposing, if that makes any sense. Well, yeah, I guess that's true. There's that line where it says that he's describes him as being, he's treated not with pity or admiration, but as someone you just prefer to have around. Mm-hmm. 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 Uh, and if people so, felt though. uncomfortable with him around... They wouldn't put up with him. But I, my point is that James O isn't people. James O is something. I don't know what James O is, but he seems so uh, disconnected from his athletic son's lives, except that he wants them to play tennis. But he's not. Right. He's not involved. Doesn't seem that involved with them in any other way. Yeah. And so. 
why he would be willing to invest so much time. I don't know. Maybe it was just too much trouble to chase Mario away. I don't know. Maybe well, and, and I, just, I, I mean, I could, I could see his internal logic being something like he doesn't think that Mario is capable of anything. And, and so when he sees Mario accomplishing things or like engaging with him intellectually, then he's like, he could, I could see him being like pleasantly surprised by that and interested mm-hmm. in keeping him around more to see what else he gets up to. I don't know. That's looking so much outside of himself. I don't know if James O is capable of looking that. Well, we also like this is this is years before he died too. Like I, I think that maybe he might have been a more fully functioning person at this period in his life. He could still apparently feel some emotion sometimes. Well, that's true. Um, mm-hmm. And and oh. mostly we've heard about him at the very end of his life when he was, by all accounts, just. Like a lunatic, c- completely fried mm-hmm. in every way. Very, very depressed. Yes. Uh, really ironic, though, that this like it seems like life transforming gift of a camera to Mario is mm-hmm. a result of his father's death, too. Right. Yeah. It also describes this this little section describes how much everybody else loves Mario. The, yeah. the low rent shop owners adore him. He goes for his long, slow walks, and the low rent shop owners adore him. Uh, he apparently he apparently somehow got Barry Loach his job. Yeah. Did you catch that? Right. Mario, through coincidence, saved him from the rank panhandling underbelly of Boston Commons Netherworld, and more or less got him his job. Yeah. So what's that about? Oh, I don't know. I hope we find out more I about that. I hope we find out. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet it mentions that the, the other, the other uh, intriguing thing, which we've talked about before, is why, uh, why the Ennett House people that work, do menial jobs at ETA, don't have more interaction with the students, or if they do have interaction. And it says there that that uh, Mario doesn't interact with those blue-collar workers at ETA, in spite of the fact that these all these sort of, you know, the low-rent owner, low-rent shop owners love him and mm-hmm. talk to mm-hmm. him, but he doesn't. He doesn't uh, interact with those kinds of folks at ETA. Mm-hmm. That is surprising. And in fact, it says it. It says none of the students at ETA interact with halfway house workers. Hmm. Yeah. Players at Denny's, when they all get to go to Denny's, almost vie to see who gets to cut up the cut upable parts of Mario's under 12 size kilo breakfast. That's yeah. really, I think that's really think that's, sweet. That's really sweet. Mm-hmm. And then we get this, I, this, just this little beautiful thing. story yeah. about, about Mario floats for Hal. He calls him boo-boo, but fears his opinion more than probably anybody except their moms. Right. Um, and and we, hear, we get this story about how it wasn't, it wasn't Avril who got Mario his, or who got Hal his first dictionary. Uh, right. It was, it was Mario, it was back Mario. when everyone was still concerned that Hal was like developmentally delayed. Right. That Mario bought this uh, dictionary and, and hauled it home in a wagon that he pulled with a rope in his teeth. So yeah. you, can, you can see why that relationship is very special to, to both of them. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah, and and there's the thing about Avril remembers uh, Mario still wanting Hal's help bathing and mm-hmm. dressing when he was 13, not for his sake, but for Hal's. Right. That desire that people have to help him with stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then you have the whole Hal trying to like Hal trying to make sense of the relationship between Avril and Mario. Yeah. Which is very complicated. It says Hal, despite himself and showing a striking lack of insight into his mom's psyche, uh, he fears that Avril sees Mario as the real prodigy. I also found it striking that uh, Avril's love is described as uh, transcending all other experiences and informing her life. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's what Hal thinks. That's what Hal thinks. Yeah, I think it's on. Is that on three seventeen? Yeah, Hal thinks uh, that she that Avril leaves Mario alone so much and treats him so less specially than she wants to. That it's all for him, for Mario. Mm-hmm. Which I'm not sure. Did I read it, that? Is right? maybe yeah. I think I think that's how I would read it. Um, but that's I, that seems maybe like a little bit of projection on Hal's part that maybe he thinks of Mario as the real prodigy of the family, and it's less a very rare and shining star. Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. I do think that that Mario's presence in her life does affect Avril differently than Orin and Hal's. Yeah, for sure. I think I need more information, though. I feel like we it's frustrating because you would think by now that we'd have many examples of Avril directly interacting with Hal and Mario together and separately. And yet we have right. almost nothing to right. go In off. Fact, of. Yeah, we don't have any examples of Avril appearing in real time. In any of this. This is true. Every time she shows up is as part of the narration when somebody is talking about her or as part of a flashback. Mm-hmm. Good point. Mm. And I find that maddening yeah. because she's still yeah. an influence and yet she hasn't actually appeared. Yeah. Yeah, it also says that she was the one that insisted that when Hal uh, started school at ETA that Mario moved into the dorm with him. She won him out of the house. <laughs> so she can have wild, wild sex with her half-brother? <laughs> yeah. Who I knows? Mean, maybe. I do. Or, I, or, I, don't, it doesn't, I don't. It does. I'm, not, I'm not convinced <laughs> that her, that her uh, intentions for Mario are in any way like dismissive or sinister. Agreed. I, I, I read that as like she wants to give Mario as as normal a childhood as she can. Right. Um, although, what do we... Making him, him live at a tennis academy is maybe not as normal a childhood as she thinks it is. Right. Well, and <laughs> it's the normal she knows. Yeah. Do we really know what the relationship is between Avril and Mario? No. We, I mean, yeah, because not at all. how... Because how's description... How says that she leaves Mario alone and and treats him so like less specially and hmm. 
And like you said, is, is the description, you know, what he thinks is going on is because he says it and he thinks it because he thinks Mario is such a special uh, person. Uh, but hmm. maybe she just really avoids him and doesn't like him and doesn't know what to do with him and doesn't have a relationship with him. I mean, Hal thinks yeah. that that's it, kind of put on. It's that possible. That's put on because he's so special to her. That she I, just can't, she doesn't want to go there because, you know, it wouldn't be fair to her other children somehow, I, you know. I she's have, trying right. hard not to show I, favorites. I, 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 I kind of doubt that, that Avril would behave in that way. But, but, you know, it reminds me of the time when my mom was my Girl Scout troop leader. Mm. Mm-hmm. And Ooh. she, she overcorrected. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, so, t- so as to not give me too much attention by giving me none. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so, I mean, maybe it's an imperfect overcorrection on her part, or maybe it's, or maybe she's treating him as specially as she would treat Hal, as opposed to as specially as a person with as many, uh, physical needs as he needs would require Mm -hmm. yeah i mean it could be that it could be that that she works hard to not show favoritism that she really does think he's this really special kid uh or it could be that she really doesn't we haven't actually seen her like be part yeah, of anything we have so, so little information so how, to go what on what do we have to go on yeah i mean she shows up at tennis matches i mean she or we she's hear not that actively she does. present though i mean no. we haven't talked to she her she goes through <laughs> motions of being mm-hmm. the mother figure but is she capable of really truly loving this Mario character? We don't we don't really know. Yeah, she it's might really hard be to say. Hiding her like favoritism or being careful not to show favoritism or maybe she he's just not her favorite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Parents have favorites? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who's your favorite, them? Mom? Uh, Atley. Mm, oh, I knew that. Yeah. <laughs> not Corbett? Not Corbett? Oh, wait, Sweet little Corbett? Corbett? No, you don't have favorites. <laughs> oh, one other little thing. Uh, yeah. Talking about Hal and kind of uh, his his feelings for Mario. And I don't I don't even know where this is, except it must be on page 317 where it, uh, that, that Hal really looks out for Mario and that he chased away Joel's veil peddling legate away from Mario. Somebody that had come that had tried to sell him on the idea of wearing a veil. I I don't, yeah, I I don't think that this was from sent by Joel. I I feel like she joined this existing organization. Yeah. Yeah. The union of the hideously and improbably deformed. Although, Although, why would they show up there looking for Mario if she but, hadn't told them that Mario might be 
be a good. I read this as that as that the union of the hideously and improbably deformed is kind of like the Jehovah's Witnesses, and they go door to door and just try and recruit people all the time. Maybe I'm so that. Also think that the uh, people of the Union of the Hideously and Improbably Deformed all wear these veils? Yes, or is it I just, think so. Okay. okay. I think so. I believe all right. so, yes. Even if their deformity is not facial? Well, right. I, I think, I think it's more like a uniform. deformity. Because... I guess even if even they're if just they're really beautiful. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. I feel like we've heard mention of some other veiled people. Is that true? Yes. Yes? Well, just, just in passing, um, that there have been, like, strangers on the street occasionally who wear veils. That sounds right. Maybe I, I'm making that up. In fact, yeah, well, do we no, know I, that, I don't now that you say it. this, now I'm wondering, do we know that, jo- that Joel had some kind of... There's the the mention of the thrown acid, but do we know that she has some kind of facial deformities? We we don't we know don't anything about know. that. We don't know anything or, about her reasons for wearing the veil. Or could she be wearing it because she's too beautiful? She could be we wearing it because she's that. too beautiful. She yeah. is the prettiest girl of all time. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did. We talked about the odalisk too, as this figure right. of like right. Right. impossible beauty in in right. ways that that uh, are undesirable to her. So that it could be that that's why she's wearing this veil. Okay. Yeah. There's a little yeah. We don't know why she's wearing that. a veil. Yeah. And I don't recall hearing about anybody else wearing a veil. Uh, that doesn't mean that either one, we haven't heard about other people wearing a veil. It could just be a detail that I just skimmed over at the time. It, or it, it might could be, be that we learn later. It might also just be something that I imagined uh, or invented hmm. myself, but I, I I think of the the this the members of this union as being kind of like not commonplace, but sort of sort of an occasional curiosity in everyday life that you might okay. see someone like this, like the Amish, like the Amish or like, like the Hare Amish Krishnas or, or something. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. My favorite was seeing the Amish families in uh, Union Station at in Chicago. Yeah, uh, traveling by train. Mm. I loved that. It just made me feel so happy and wholesome. Um, if we're ready, before we move on to the next chapter, I've got a bit of information that's really neither here nor there, but something that I found out that I think is statistically relevant. Okay. 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 Um, Emil Minty is a real person. What? Yeah. So, um, Emil Minty is an Australian former child actor. He played the feral kid, a feral child, in the 1981 film Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior. Oh! Whoa. Yep. And where did he so, come up in this? Uh, he's he, at Ennett House. And, yeah, oh, and it has. Oh. Yeah, he was a he was a oh, drug right. dealer. Didn't did, wasn't he that, selling drugs to to poor Tony? Yeah, he was the now, one that they didn't have much information on. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. Now oh. Emil Minty does he's look a uh, very he's the different. Hardcore smack addict punk. Yeah, with right. the mohawk. Yeah. Okay, now. So Emil Minty does look very different than how he's or the our Emil Minty looks very different uh, than how he's described in the book. But 
I'm oh. not ruling out the possibility that maybe in this timeline, uh, Emil Minty, it, that these are the same like, Emil Minty. Yeah, like he moved to he moved to Boston and got addicted to smack. Right. It, like the, the ages would line up. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's so strange. That what a find. Mm-hmm. I know. Yeah, and I can't, I think it had I think I was just like doing a crossword puzzle and it was <laughs> a clue and yeah, I I'm pretty sure that's it, but I really have no idea. I can't remember what I was doing when I found this wow. out, but yeah. That is bizarre. Mhm. Uh th- thank Good you find. for that. Good yeah. Find, You're very welcome. Baby. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about freedom and the state. <laughs> yes. So, Excellent. So, uh, Steeply and Marat's conversation has devolved totally into, like, personal <laughs> philosophies at this point. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I have a lot to say about this section. I think that Marat expresses himself pretty clearly. And it does seem like we, I mean, we've already kind of talked about the ways in which he's laid out these cultural differences between Quebec and the United States in the past. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have too much to say about this either. Um, I do want to highlight that very last paragraph of this chapter, which I think is uh, pretty important and relevant to what we've been discussing. Unmentioned by either man was how, in heaven's name, either man expected to get up or down from the mountainside <laughs> shelf in the dark of the U.S. desert night. Yeah. Right. Which has been my question. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so now we've established that they also don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> right. I thought it was really deep. <laughs> yeah. I thought there were a lot of things that were like raising really good, like really big questions and i what did i write here uh i think most succinctly he says you cannot kill what is already dead yeah someone or some people among your own history sometime killed your usa nation already right you're saying that the administration wouldn't even be concerned about the entertainment if we didn't know we were fatally weak as in a nation you're saying the fact that we're worried speaks volumes about the nation itself. Like if yeah. if you weren't if we weren't weak, then this deadly entertainment would not be a problem because people would be aware enough to not participate in it. I thought it I don't know. It's not specifically the same as issues that are coming up during our pandemic, but it felt kind of like that. It felt mm-hmm. like a, yes. always with you, this freedom for your walled up country, always to shout freedom, freedom, as if it were obvious to all people what it me- what it wants to mean, this word. It's not yeah. so simple as that. Your freedom is the freedom from. No one tells your precious individual USA selves what they must do. It is this meaning only, this freedom from constraint and forced duress. It's it, it it's impossible not to think of people shouting about how they you can't make me wear a mask. Mm-hmm. I I felt like it all hit awfully close to home, and it was it was a little disheartening to read this chapter to me. I thought it was, yeah. Who has taught them to choose with care? Oh yeah. 
Um, <laughs> when I read that paragraph, I immediately thought about the Harper's letter. Um, oh, yeah. Signed by 150 authors and academics saying, basically... Um, Cancel culture has gone too far. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, why am I not allowed to say the, the icky things that I want to say? You're being mean to me. Yeah. Um, but if you, if you give those people the freedom from... Yeah, they're asking for freedom from consequences, from, yeah. From criticism, from consequences, then you're infringing on somebody else's freedom to something. Yeah. Which I found very, very interesting. Uh, because I, I also think that... I think I agree with Murat that the United States' idea of freedom is a protection from something else. Right. So I guess a protection against bondage. But not everybody has that freedom. And also... Right. A protection against, against certain kinds of bondage and like an erasure of the visibility of other kinds of bondage. Right. Mm -hmm. Because only one type of bondage defines that type of freedom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It says, what, what of, but what of the freedom to, not just mm -hmm. freedom yeah. from? Not all compulsion comes from without. You pretend you don't see this. What of freedom to? How for the person to freely choose? How to choose any but a child's greedy choices? If there's no loving, filled father to guide, inform, teach the person how to choose. How's their freedom to choose if no one does not, if one does not learn how to choose? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. The rich father who can afford the cost of candy as well as food for his children, but if he cries out freedom and allows his child to choose only what's sweet, only eating candy, not pea soup and bread and eggs, so his child becomes weak and sick. Mm. Is the rich man who cries freedom the good father? Uh, it's all just really... <laughs> I thought mm -hmm. I thought it was all a very uh, very harsh and probably very apt commentary on American life and culture. Yeah. yeah. I thought that it looped pretty neatly into 318's uh, line about uh, there will then be some choosing to partake or choose not to, which reminded me a lot of the to be or not to be speech in Hamlet. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I guess freedom from, freedom to, to be or not to be, maybe? Mm-hmm. Another choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it's time to tackle Eschaton. Oh, boy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so... Um, November 8th, Interdependence Day. Woohoo! Uh, Gaudiamus Igitur, by the way, is uh, Latin for So Let Us Rejoice. Oh, um, it, right. It's a song that's popular at European commencement ceremonies. Uh, the lyrics are thought to date to around 1287 and the music to around 1782, although the original authors are unknown. I looked at, I just want to say too, I looked it up and read a little about it too. And it's so weird because it's like used officially at uh, graduation ceremonies, but it's also yeah. like a sort of a drinking song. The like lyrics a, yeah, reflect. And, 
Yeah. Uh, it, the it's lyrics a, reflect an endorsement of the bacchanalian mayhem of student life while simultaneously mm-hmm. retaining the grim knowledge that one day we will all die. Right. Uh, oh. Right. So the so here I, I have some translated lyrics, but here first of all we can just listen to the first yeah. the first little bit. Okay. So after listening to that, um, I did I did realize that I recognized the tune, um, and, and so here's here are some translated lyrics. Let us rejoice, therefore, while we are young. After a pleasant youth, after a troubling old age, the earth will have us. Our shared life is brief, soon it will end. Death comes quickly, snatches us cruelly, to nobody shall it be spared. Long live the academy, long live the professors, long live each student, long live the whole fraternity, forever may they flourish. Long live all girls, easy and beautiful. Long live mature women, too. Tender, lovable, good, and hardworking. Long live the state as well, and he who rules it. Long live our city and the charity of benefactors which protects us here. May sadness perish, may haters perish, may the devil perish, and also the opponents of the fraternities and their mockers, too. Hey, haters gonna hate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it says it says they said that it was like the official song of many schools and universities, and also the official anthem of the International University Sports Federation. Yes, mm. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, the Wikipedia page says that it's it uh, it expresses a sort of ironic detachment from the idea of universities as like august learning institutions. Um, and and it's kind of it, the lyrics are playful in that way, uh, although it also says citation needed for that claim. So, mm. <laughs> okay. So I just thought to myself, you know, I haven't actually Googled Askaton. Mm, yes. Ooh. So oh. So I found a couple of very interesting things. Uh, Google's dictionary popped up for me uh, that. Eschaton is a noun and specifically related to theology, and it's the final event in the divine plan, the mm-hmm. end of like the, the world. Oh. Like the apocalypse. Yeah. yeah. Precisely. Oh. I thought it was just a made-up word, uh-huh. I gotta say. There's also a single released in 2017 by indie folk band Darlingside. They're a Boston-based band. Hee-hee-hee-hee. <laughs> <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, Eschaton is a surreal Zoom nightclub and a theater for the age of social distancing. What? Mm, huh. So I'm dropping a link in the general text chat um, to this article, but it's basically talking about um, performance art via video chat. 
and the name of the event or the theater or the yeah I ju- i'm just looking at the poll quote the man in the rat costume sits quietly uh-huh <laughs> <laughs> It actually sounds really fascinating, and yeah. I want to check it out. Yeah, um, for sure. But yeah, I thought it was a fake word, uh, but it's actually related to the apocalypse. Interesting. Which yeah. is fitting. That's extremely mm-hmm. fitting. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so, there's a board game, too. Oh. 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 Is, is it, like, based on the Infinite Jest game, or...? Yeah, and I'm also wondering, like, was... The Eschaton game described, was it already a game or is it just something right. completely made up? Oh, this card game is not the same. No. Mm. Okay. okay. Uh, but you do lead a cult in the final days before Armageddon. Oh, that's nice. Oh, that, kind of, that kind of works. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have just kind of a side comment about... It came to me uh, as they started to describe eschaton in more detail, but it, there have also been other references about like all these all these traditions that ETA has. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems like it seems like they have many traditions that mm. are referred to and that they really uh, follow carefully, and yet it. it it struck me a little as a little odd because the school is not old. Yeah, well, and the it also talks about how... The school has only been how, there for what, like eight years? How do you have tradition? Like, when, And it even talks know. about how Pemulus kind of reinvented Eschaton when he was the, the right. game master. I forget the exact title that he has, but... But ETA is not an old institution. Right. right. No. It's like, what, eight years? At this point? Yeah. So mm. I imagine it's something like they're kind of overcompensating in a way that well, since don't... ETA is so young, they want to make up a bunch of traditions so that they seem I... older. I'm not 100% convinced. Like, for the students who are there now, it doesn't matter how old the school is. Like, even mm. a brand new school has its own kind of peculiar culture. student culture and, and, and student obsessions. But, like, they talk about this eschaton evolving over time and my first thought is it sounds like something you know that has been going on at the school for years and years and years and over time uh so pemulus introduced the uh online the the data thing that he that the software that they use or the system that they use for monitoring and that that changed the game a lot once they had Mm -hmm. that information and it just seems like something a game that's been around and developing for more than eight years Mm -hmm. but i don't know but we also have to remember that a student student body's memory is really really short yeah Mm -hmm. so Hmm. something that has existed for three years to the to the student who has been there only when that has been the thing it that that tradition has been there for as long as they can remember. Right, so and it apparently started. Yeah, and it apparently started the first year ETA opened because wasn't Oren part of hatching the devising the game? I I believe so. And he yeah. was only there for a year. Hmm. Hmm. Because he oh. was like seventeen when they opened. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. 
And so all of these, so Hal and friends have all been there since the beginning. Pen, well, Pem, yeah, Pemulus too, right? Yeah. Somebody came mm-hmm. later. The dentist kid came later. Oh, uh, shot. Yeah. Uh, but everybody else that is that age pretty much has been there since the place opened. Mm-hmm. But I can also see how, like, in, in a larger society where a game like this might be introduced and it would be an oddity that sometimes people are interested in, like, in, in, in such a walled-off, tiny community how something like that could take hold and become an obsession that just sweeps through everyone because they're so separated from the rest of the world. The other thing Mm. that the other thing that was kind of a question mark for me is so they describe it as being really mostly like the 13 to 15 year olds who play it. Yeah. It's like the younger kids. And I, I, I wondered, I, I wondered how that came to be because is it just that the older the older kids don't have time because of their because their practice and play schedule is stepped up so much. But that doesn't seem right because it seems like everybody has just a grueling schedule. So what? And obviously it's a complex game that yeah. you would never really truly master. I mean, it's a and so why why don't they keep playing? Why do they hand things off to the to the younger kids. What yeah, is it's, it about, it's odd. The, I don't about know. it that mm-hmm. makes them stop? It is maybe Unless just this kind part of, of thing. Well, no, this kind of thing doesn't happen. The unmitigated disaster hasn't happened before. Yeah, so a chunk of this chapter happens in an end note. Yeah. Yes. Where we're getting this like transcript that Hal is writing of Pemulus telling him how the um uh you how to use the mean value formula for dividing available megatonnage among combatants um based on this ratio Mm -hmm. i have one more that's all based on previous games yeah yeah like like an at bat percentage in baseball you say that as if I know anything about baseball. I say that as if I know anything about baseball. You say that as if baseball knows anything about baseball. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had just another, another hint, I, which mm. I had a lot of this. Mm-hmm. But, but it said uh, right at the beginning of this chapter, when they're just talking about, you know, the inception of the game, it says, you can pretty easily date its conception from the mechanics of the game itself. Hmm. Hmm. So... Do that, by that, I, do they mean, like, nuclear war? Or what do they like, mean? Yeah, and then like it arms race. It's almost, addictively, it's almost addictively compelling, and it shocks the tall. What I think adults. Mean? It scandalizes oh, adults that children adults. are playing okay. this game about nuclear okay. war. Okay. Um, okay. Which, but first-person shooter video games. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm just saying, there are plenty of things to be yeah. scandalized by. Teenage sexuality. Mm-hmm. What else can I put in there? Mm-hmm. Uh, drug use. Uh, mm-hmm. Underage drinking. Rap music. 
<laughs> that <laughs> rap music. Uh, <laughs> but that seems to be one of the things that the ETA kids like about it is that adults find it in some way scandalous or objectionable. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the only reason that ETA tolerates it, it seems, is that kids who play it get, develop really good, accurate lives. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, but yeah, so there's all this there's all this math involved and all this like statistical analysis using a variety mm-hmm. of formulas and right. databases. Um, there's a there's a mention of the uh, James Incandenza's fearsome idle drop clothed DEC twenty one hundred that's used right. as like um, the the number cruncher. It's connected to a portable computer via a cellular antenna or a, a cellular modem. Right. Um, that it's then that, that computer's out on the, the court. Office, right? Yeah. So I looked this up. Uh, the DEC 2100 is indeed a real thing. I'm going to put a picture of it in the reference channel. Ah. Um, I, I, so this is what I think mm. it's referring to. It's the, the Digital Equipment Corporation Alpha Server 2100, which was introduced in 1994. Um, it's a single pedestal, large capacity, secure computing system supporting up to four processors the industry standard PCI bus and three operating systems. Um, I found a reference to the original price being six hundred thousand dollars, but I'm I'm not sure how accurate that is. Um, you try googling digital computer and see how many relevant <laughs> results you can find. That would make sense, though. Yeah. I mean, yeah. just a, just so it's the a, very simplest was, was pricey, a couple and, thousand, and this and was this is like infinitely, this is like, infinitely. yeah, it, it generally used as like a large network server, but is basically right. a, a self-contained supercomputer. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have a lot so of computing they, power at their disposal here so that they, they use, and they, and they couldn't have had it if if they hadn't, uh, you know, swiped it from James O's stash of stuff. Right. Uh, and they, they, they and they say you, they, they say you need uh, at least forty <laughs> megabytes of available RAM in order to play this game, which would have been a lot in at least at the time the book was written. Forty megs would have been a lot of memory. Yeah, yeah. So it's all based on this like they place down a variety of targets for these different these different states who are played by different students, and then they there's. So, so uh, the the in the in the simplest mechanic, the game is about like lobbing tennis balls and trying to hit other countries' strategic targets. Yeah, but there's also this whole other like model UN kind of like um, diplomatic role playing thing to the whole right. game. Also, right? Yeah, and the idea is that you're only targeting. Um, that you don't target civilian populations, that you don't target civilian targets, otherwise right. you lose points. You, you, yeah, so you, it, the, the final scores are calculated in a ratio of like hits to, um, oh, wait a minute, usually end up caught. So SACPOP is the acronym for strikes against civilian populations. Uh, mm-hmm. Is where they, where they they put a bunch of tennis balls in an athletic supporter and launch that up into the air, and then it kind of the, the tennis balls all kind of go in different directions and hit a bunch of different things. Um, and they usually cost combatants 
uh, so many points they're eliminated from further contention. Uh, these, I, 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 th- there are a lot of military abbreviations here. Some of them are real. I think some of them are probably invented. Yeah. Um, and a lot of them are not defined and you kind of just have to figure out what it's talking about through context clues. They talk about where they've plugged this thing in the modem or whatever in, oh, yeah. in Stitt's yeah. office. And it's under the lower left corner of the enormous print of, I don't know how to say it. Uh, Durer's The Magnificent, the Magnificent Beast. Beast. I looked yeah. up The Magnificent Beast. Oh. And, okay. and The Magnificent Beast is kind of cute. It's an, also an apocalyptic thing. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Cute. Yeah, it is kind of cute. It's got. It looks like a chimera. Yeah, a little seven bit. Seven heads? Does it it's have seven the apocalypse. Heads? Yeah. Yeah. I would be okay with the apocalypse if I got to pet that thing. I know. Uh, that's Yeah, that's an odd thing to have in one's office. Uh-huh. Yeah. That yeah, because, yeah, I also looked it up, and, yeah, it is part of his uh, woodcuttings of apocalyptic imagery and things like that. And also, mm. they point out that before Pemulus and his all his... Uh, computerizing the the system it used to be played like by rolling dice well that's how that's how the initial uh the quantities of warheads were apportioned was through dice rolls it was still a tennis game yeah okay um and so then we get this whole rundown of the the scenario that uh is it Otis right. Lord? Otis P. Lord. Oh my the, gosh! We're stepping right over Pilgrim's Progress from oh, this we world don't want to, to that step which is over to come. Oh yeah, we don't want which, to step over which that. is is held up as a, as a shining beacon of something that's boring to read. <laughs> yes, and I vividly remember reading part of it in high school. Uh huh. Oh, um, I think I did is, too. I don't remember any of it. I just remember wanting to tear my hair out. (laughs) Um, But Wikipedia says that it's been cited as the first novel written in English. I believe I read it as the first thing in our American history course. Hmm. Or not course. Hmm. uh, Not history. Literature. American Hmm. literature It wouldn't have been American, would it, though? I think the idea was that it was... The first the, thing to be close to American. The foundation okay. on which all things are built. Something about mm-hmm. uh, uh-huh. being a pilgrim and oh, pilgrims okay. finding America. Okay. Gotcha. Um, but also, through looking up the Pilgrim's Progress, I learned, which I didn't know, that Slaughterhouse Five is a direct, like, riff. On oh, the really? progress. Oh, oh. <laughs> ah. right. Wild. Well, then how come Slaughterhouse wow. Five is such a good book, and this apparently isn't? <laughs> Probably because Slaughterhouse Five was written by Kurt Vonnegut and not <laughs> uh, Jay Bunyan. Mm. Um, but I also learned that the Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck mentions The Pilgrim's Progress as one of a character's favorite books, which Mm. is very depressing. (laughs) Um, uh, Charlotte Bronte refers to Pilgrim's Progress in most of her works. Oh, wow. Really? Just, it sounds Ah. like just incidentally. That's strange. Um, So, 
Pilgrim's Progress. Really, really boring. Although, according to that 2019 trailer for an animated film based on the Pilgrim's Progress, there are dragons. <laughs> so maybe it's oh. not as boring as we huh. think it is. Huh. I, I think you underestimate uh, early writers' ability to make interesting things boring. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I did glance at a PDF of The Pilgrim's Progress, and there was a... Um, so, I don't know if you're familiar with the idea that literature often is preceded by an apology by the writer. Mm, yeah. Um, mm. And it's like, I'm sorry, I didn't do this justice, and it's just, this is the best I can do, I'm just a human being. Um, and in contrast, the preface says... The writings of Mr. Bunyan need no recommendatory preface. Basically, that this is just so good. <laughs> There's you nothing to apologize it. for. Yeah. So instead of apologizing, somebody else uh, really, really amped it up. It's hype. the first blurb. Yeah. yeah. John Newton wow. is Jay Bunyan's hype man. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And that's why I have about the Pilgrim's Progress. Okay. Maybe okay. I'll Thank read you. it and I'll come back to and you, you and be like, report. it's so boring. <laughs> so we were talking about the, uh, the initiate or the triggering event. Yes. That, that's been devised mm -hmm. by Otis P. Lord for this game. So, so Who Otis is Lord is God. the, is, is playing Lord God, God is, is the like. Lord God. Lord. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was checking. Cool. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So he, he comes up with this scenario in which, Basically, uh, everything everything falls apart and everyone's yes. on the brink of nuclear war. And let me just say <laughs> that that they play. They say they play like about once a month. Mm -hmm. This kid must spend all of his time trying to put together the scenario. Mm -hmm. It's very complicated. He's like I a mean, dungeon it goes on master. and on and on and on. Yeah. yeah. Goes on and 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 on. Yeah, like a dungeon master with more statistics and math and uh, all <laughs> right. sorts of things. Yeah, right. Yeah, which also like um, going back to our ongoing discussion on how mathematics plays into the uh, curriculum of ETA. Um, I mean, they are doing you know integral calculus here and everything. Yeah. So that is pretty high level math for a school that doesn't have much in the way of math. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. right. <laughs> Isn't it lucky they're doing it extracurricularly? Isn't that mm -hmm. great? They're making yeah. good choices <laughs> to improve their brains. I thought it was also amusing. So they've got this, this ridiculously big and difficult rule book that Pemulus has dictated to Hal, and then he mm -hmm. writes it down, right? And so they talk about how just difficult it is, and then, but then they say that kids memorize it. Yeah. Kids memorize it, the whole thing. Hal is describing the triggering situation that Otis has come up with, and Hal keeps sticking in these, So, and Otis is all business, right? Relating mm -hmm. this and getting mm -hmm. things set up. And Hal, 
is throwing in some really dumb, funny bits that I also looked up. Oddly a lot enough, of these little toss-ins and embellishments like the, are Ink amusing like himself, Prince, not Otis's triggering Prince situation. Prince Albert in a can. There's some oh, reference yeah. to Prince Albert. I looked that up. That's a, that's a prank enough, call, it's a, right? It's a classic prank phone call for back in the days when you didn't have caller ID. Mm, yeah. A stupid, like, kid practical joke. Is your refrigerator running the, kind of yeah, stuff. Mm-hmm, that same thing, too. And then, the you know, so before the days of caller ID... Kids used to do that, and that's. I do really not true. know what Prince Albert in a can actually is. It's uh, chewing tobacco. Oh, okay. Oh, do you okay. have Prince Albert in a can? They call we'll let call him out. stores called drug stores. Yeah. They do that. Yeah. yeah. We'll let him mm-hmm. out. Is your refrigerator running? <laughs> better go well, catch it. You better go catch it. Actually, did that. Kids actually <laughs> did that. Yeah. That's in my lifetime. And it was hilarious. So funny. Uh, our favorite was uh, when when I was in high school uh, was that one of my fr- I forget who it was. One of my friends over lunch would hang out in the hallway and they had a cell phone, which was kind of a novelty at the time. And they would dial like um, the, uh, they discovered that Big Taco was a valid local number. Uh, uh- and and they would like so so they would spell things and then see if the person who answered knew that their phone number was the thing oh, that they had just spelled. Oh, oh, that's actually kind of funny. Makes me wonder if my number spells something. Unfortunately, yeah. numbers with ones in them don't spell anything. Mm. Oh my gosh, I have a number that doesn't have a one. Oh, 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 and mom, I guess you do too. I do my too. number has a one. Well, we'll we'll work on that, and I'll see what I can spell with your phone number. Okay. Okay. I like the detail that uh, Italy, in an apparently bizarre NSTAT-generated development Otis P. Lord will only smile enigmatically about, invades Albania. They also point out somewhere that Canadians are often end up playing really uh, petty, worthless, but vicious roles in, yeah. Oh, yeah. in the scenarios. So yeah, I thought about Canadian that. Canadian antagonism. And the, the, the way that it's just because these kids are indoctrinated in a culture that vilifies right. Canadians Canada. in the way that <laughs> like American kids in the 60s would have been indoctrinated in a culture that vilifies communists. Right. Um, Although oddly, which, uh, Canadians are part of Onan. Right. Which mm-hmm. is a little bit different scenario. And, and yet we're still fun. suspicious of them. Yes. I have to say, by the way, if you ever want to just giggle uncontrollably about politics, uh, <laughs> go watch go watch the original Red Dawn and just think about how terrified, like quaking in our boots, terrified Reagan era America was of Nicaragua, of all places. Nicaraguans <laughs> are the big bad guys in Red Dawn. They invade oh. the United States. Oh. oh. Oh, yeah. Possibly the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere and all that Americans can think of. This was around the time of the uh, the uh, Sandinista War, uh, right. mm-hmm. the, the Nicaraguan Revolution. And they were getting uh, help from the Russians, right? Where, was there, uh, unclear. Was there so, I, it might have, it might have been Cuba. Cuban, they might have been getting Cuban, help from Cuba. Cuba. Mm. Um, yeah. But yeah, that that we thought that the thing that would overthrow American military might was this tiny country with no military. Right. Mm -hmm. So another thing that's neither here nor there that 
You know, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit, but I'll go ahead and do it. Uh, Red Chai. Or, so, it wasn't until you just read it as Red China that I realized that that was China. I thought it was Chicago. Oh, that's much more interesting. <laughs> yeah. I just didn't guess, but I did see Shy and I thought Chicago. I, I yeah. love the idea of, like, Chicago seceding from the United States and forming its own country. Yeah, yeah or that somehow, like... With nuclear like, first strike capabilities. Right. Yeah, or that, you know, the U.S. Um, nuclear capabilities is so big and complicated that you have to have two. You have to have both Amnet and Red Chai mm, to yeah. uh, figure things out and talk between themselves about it. Yeah. Okay, what's Amnet, though? American national, I guess. I'm not sure yeah. exactly. I thought I thought Sov War was similarly American, bizarre. American, like NATO, maybe? American. Yeah. Oh, that could be. America and oh, NATO. Okay, yeah. And then Sov War would be Soviet. Does it just mean the Soviets want war? I don't know. Soviet I, Warsaw? Yeah. Or, uh, maybe. Soviet, uh, but but the oh. Soviet Soviet Republic would have included Poland included anyway. Warsaw. Yeah, I mean, it could be a slight realization that the Soviet Union, one, came back, and two, was distinct from Warsaw, but Warsaw joined the Soviet, or was allies with them. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, And South Africa is in there, right? South Africa's in there. Uh, uh, Is it Iran, Libya, Syria is in there? Yeah. Yeah. India Pakistan is in there, which yeah. is an odd, mm-hmm. odd. conglomeration uh-huh. given their tensions. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and then we get this this weird recurring thing where the narration keeps drawing our attention to uninitiated adults parked in a nearby mint yes. green advertorial Ford yes. sedan. We never car? find out who's in this car, no. but it keeps I being hate mentioned. That. Yeah. And presumably they're just sitting there watching all this happen. Yes. Yeah. Yes. They're there the whole time. They are. I just wanted to butt in here real, real quick and say 327, uh, JJ Penn being described as not exactly the brightest log on the Yuletide fire <laughs> made me so happy mm-hmm. uh, because it's so rude. Yes. And I, just, really rude. I just love yeah. it. It's great. It's rude. <laughs> Um, there's another, there's another reference here that I chased down, uh, South Africa is portrayed by Brooklyn, New York's little hard ass Josh Gopnik, uh, the same Josh Gopnik who, by the way, subscribes to commentary. Oh, I looked that up too. Um, mm. is, is a, a long, it started in the forties, I think an American magazine on religion, Judaism, and politics. Uh, uh-huh. it was described by Benjamin Ballant in the eponymous book that he wrote as the contentious magazine that transformed the Jewish left into the neoconservative right under the the stewardship of editor Norman Potteretz, who used his position to advance an agenda of fighting against Islamofascism, which was often referred to in the magazine as World War Four. Yeah. So there's some stuff about like. Jewish American politics here. Right. Um, I think we can assume also that Josh Gopnik is Jewish. Jewish. I'm not entirely sure how I feel about that, but yeah. 
another person that might be farther along where that we learn that Ingersoll Evan Ingersoll mm-hmm. Evan Ingersoll is only 1.3 meters tall oh that's 4 foot 3 well how old is he isn't he like 11 yeah Oh, okay. I yeah. guess that's that's still pretty that's short for an eleven year old. Short. Yeah. It's like a first grader or second grader. Mm, yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Um just another hmm. There's uh, a couple other there's there's one other detail that gets thrown in and then men, uh, mentioned again later that Trevor Axford has only three and a half digits on his right yes. hand. And oh, I think it said yeah. this is that today is the third anniversary of his losing those fingers. Mm-hmm. Right. Did they tell us how he lost them? No. It feels like no. I don't think so. I guess the broadest concept that I want to talk about is the purpose this chapter served. Mm-hmm. Mm. And... Yeah, and why do we have this chapter? Why is it here? Why is it not an endnote? And things like that. To answer my own question, um, I mean, I think the apocalyptic imagery uh, kind of fits in with the book and everything. And definitely by the time everything started falling apart and they started like arguing about whether snow was real, snow was real or not, and mm-hmm. all of that. Right. Th- then I started getting a little bit more into the chapter, and it kind of gave us a little bit of a flavor of ETA and student. Yeah. I will um, say, I, I think it, it shows an, a great amount of uh, uh, narrative efficiency, like an unexpected uh, level of narrative efficiency from David Foster Wallace, that he introduces us to this game and also shows the fiasco in the same kind of scene. Because hmm. I, I could imagine this being a thing that gets introduced and we like see two or three different games over right. the course of the book and then eventually there's this one that falls apart. Yeah. Wouldn't that be horrifying? It would be too much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, this um, was pretty much too much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe like I, like I think that I think that some of the stuff about the the mechanics of how the game works got a little tiresome to me. But I thought yeah. that Agreed. if Although, you can, if you can step aside from those things, like the narrative movement of the scene felt pretty succinct to me. Although I expected to really hate all the detail, reading all the details of how the game was set up and what this did, you know, the like the things they put out on the court, the stands. For, mm-hmm. But I found that I could really picture yeah. I really could picture, like, the setup out mm-hmm. on these four courts. I could see it. And so then when things just totally came to pieces, I could really... It, it was it was like I was watching it visually. Yeah. I was watching yeah. them run across the court. I could, I could, I could picture it in a very mm-hmm. horrible way. Yeah. There were some really just funny things too, like like uh, Otis P. Lord. He wears the beanie, right, as the game master. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and he wears different point, colored it ha- beanie. It, yes, it has a, the yeah. different colored beanie means something different, and the beanies have propellers on them. Yeah, I but love like yeah. I love the somberness with which he like takes them spins, out of the lockbox. Yes, yeah, and then he spins the propeller. Yeah, yeah. To, to indicate that things have gone completely are, sideways. Are propellers right. on beanies still a thing? I don't know that That's they like were ever a thing, 50. really. Oh, yes, 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 yes. 
Not yes. for like serious people to walk down the street wearing though. Right. Yeah. Uh, no, but they were a definite thing. I, they may oh, have yeah. come from the little rascals even. I wonder. Huh. Oh. So there was that, but I found just amusing. Right. That mm-hmm. this is like the serious the serious nuclear war game and this the guy in charge of it has a a beanie with a propeller on it. The other Mm. thing that I kept just giggling about and wondering about and thinking about Brianna was that one of the players is named Ann Kitten Kitten Plan. Kitten Plan. Yes, what a great surname. Mm -hmm. Oh, dear. She's the one that got hit, right? That started yeah. the yeah. She's, she's the one mm-hmm. who's like, sus- they say she's suspiciously muscular and is the, does yes. all the launching for yes. America, I think? Uh, no, she, she was so war, yeah. Yeah. She also has a mustache? Yes, or at hmm. least more of a mustache than Hal had. Right. Hmm. So, um, in answer to Vinny's question, why do we think this chapter even exists? Mm -hmm. Because I find myself asking that question about a lot of chapters, (laughs) just ever. Yeah. Um, But, so, to me, it felt like a... Meanwhile, back at Hogwarts, the kids really are kids. Look, Mm. they play Mm -hmm. games. Right. Yeah. Like for fun. I think it it does also, it does, (laughs) it does put forth this, this recurring theme of like impending disaster pretty directly. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, just further planting the seed that things are, everything's just hanging on by a thread and things could become completely out of control at a moment's notice. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, But like Brianna said, it's like so refreshing that they actually play something and that they yeah. find time when they can do something that's not an adult directed activity. And yet when they first yet. when they first getting things set up and they first start playing, there's the comment made that that the that the game is strangely subdued mm-hmm. if yeah, you're watching it and like, that the kids like are very adult like. Chess. Like they're mm-hmm. more they're more adult than adults. Yeah. In their approach yeah. to the game. I mean, to begin with, anyway. Right. Or maybe they mean, you know, even everything that happened was more adult-like. I don't mm-hmm. know. It seems like character development and uh, kind of like window dressing. Um, yeah. Because, I mean, I think it does tell us some things about Hal in here. Um, on 329, he talks or he refers to how he's not going to uh, get high in public. Uh, probably, I mean, especially out in the open in front of little buddies, which seems to just kind of violate some sort of issue of taste. And he struggles to articulate that. I thought that that was one, adorable, <laughs> and two, um, definitely piles on his interest in just getting high by himself and uh, in his isolated little tunnel right. sanctuary. Right. Um, yeah. And then seeing Pemulus's freak out about how <laughs> Lord handles things, maybe it's something to do with uh, leaving behind a legacy and what are you as the lever going to do when you're looking at 
what the next person is doing with it. Mm-hmm. But maybe that's also heavily influenced by my disappointment with my alma mater getting rid of a large number of programs mm-hmm. that lend to the liberal arts character of it. So um. <laughs> maybe I'm just projecting. But um, still, the interesting uh, dynamics between the older students and the younger students here, it's wild to me that it's the younger students who are playing this really complicated game. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really, I, I am almost as captivated by the discussion of the abstraction of maps uh, as Hal is. <laughs> I think that it's a, mm-hmm. a really fun direction for this game to go at absolutely um not at all the spirit of the game but mm-hmm. uh very amusing and i also think that um that evan ingersoll's strategic introduction of chaos here is like a master stroke he's he's, he's almost like an evil genius or something <laughs> the degree to which right. he's able to sabotage the game right mm-hmm. uh, and I think he makes some pretty good arguments too. Like I can see why Lord doesn't just reject his arguments right. out of hand. Right. And it makes uh, Pemula so mad. Oh, that's yeah. the other thing. I thought yeah. that was the other uh, the other thing that that makes me worry a lot is I think it's in an end note where it points out that Pemulus is a good friend and and a really bad news enemy. Yeah. Mm. Oh, there's also this reference to a thing that he did to the older brother of this kid that he's yelling at. Is it? uh, Penn's. Penn's older brother. He mentions Mm. dickying with the mirror over the bureau in the little recessed part of your subdorm room so that when you look in the mirror in the AM to comb or tend to a blackhead or something, you see something staring back at you that you'll never entirely get over. Which is what took over two years to finally happen to M.H. Penn, who afterward wouldn't uh, wouldn't say what he'd seen, but stopped shaving altogether, and it's agreed has never been quite himself since. Right. Well, right. that's because he was terrorizing oh, Pemulus. Oh, wow. Right. Yeah, right. so it's definitely out of revenge, but I just don't understand what Pemulus could have done or how that Is works. Is it some <laughs> kind of refraction, some kind it's of some a kind of optical, thing, optical thing, I guess. thing. But mirror sabotage is just yeah. Right. yeah, or holography or something, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> On the very last page, uh, there's a line that says, For a brief moment that Hal will later regard as completely and uncomfortably bizarre, Hal feels at his own face to see whether he is wincing. Oh, yeah. Oh, Which, yeah. Heck, yeah, it is totally foreshadowing to the uh, very first chapter where he's in his admissions meeting and is like, I'm smiling, I promise, but apparently isn't. So um, I was super duper excited to see that. Yeah, that's Um, creepy because it means it's already happening. Yeah. I mean, or place. it's just being directly foreshadowed. Yeah. Huh. But yeah, I highlighted that too. Um, Good. I also just really like the description of what's happening as a degenerative chaos so complex in its disorder that it's hard to tell whether it seems choreographed or simply chaotically disordered. 
There's also those apostrophes, just because I have to yep. bring this up yep. all the there's, time. There's, I noticed <laughs> that a bunch games, ever since you God's mentioned it last decisions. time. Like yeah. today's game's God's decision. <laughs> yeah. Stop that. Yeah. <laughs> Would you stop that? Uh, but the game, so the the disaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, did anyone die? I don't Literally? think any. I don't think yeah. anyone. Di- no. Well. Otis P. Uh, Lord smashed through the glass. Oh, headfirst into a computer monitor. Oh, like that's right. sticking out. I don't, I don't, I don't think, think so. anyone died, but I think there are some probably some some season engine ending injuries for some of these kids. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I I definitely think there are lots of injuries, lots of uh, serious injuries, but I don't think anyone died. I don't and think even Otis P. Lord, who yeah rammed his head through a computer monitor. I don't think he's dead, but I think he is very seriously injured. I mean, there is an electrocution risk with that for right. sure, because mm-hmm. it was powered up at the time. Lord yeah, does, does indeed go headfirst down through the monitor's screen and stays there, his sneakers in the air and his warm-up pants sagging upward to reveal black socks. There'd been a bad sound of glass. Yeah, I I think that if he were actually electrocuted, that would be a, a different scene playing out there. I why so why didn't these older kids go get why didn't they jump in? I mean they may not. I think not they've have all got their to, different reasons. One of them is unconscious. They may, they mm-hmm. may uh, right. yeah. yeah. Uh, one of them is busy doing color commentary and probably just wants to let the wants to watch the drama unfold. Hal seems yeah. like paralyzed by indecision. And yeah, and Penulus is still like fuming so and hopping he's, up and he's down. He's still furious he's about furious. about Lord's like what what he thinks is wrecking the game, and he kind I forget what he says, but something about like they you know they made their bed now let him sleep in it. Yeah, right. yeah. And he did warn them. Like as it turns out, he wasn't wrong. Mm-hmm. Could have gone about it better, but he does he even says like if if we if your ruling suggests that it's okay to launch tennis balls at other players then there's nothing to stop that from being the only thing anyone ever does right right here again i feel like it's um commentary on our current political situation <laughs> mm, yes i mean you could say i thought the about that too it that, the, that it if reminded you say it's me okay if you say it's okay to belittle and bully and support racists and from your position for instance as president of the united states then pretty much anything goes you're mm-hmm. you know yeah. if that's the case once you say that it's okay or at least that you don't say that it's not okay then all control is lost all it's like just mayhem yeah it, mm-hmm. it, it's funny that you mentioned that because it did kind of the whole argument with Ingersoll did kind of strike me as like a constitutional uh, right. disagreement right? Um, between Pemulus as like a strict constructionist and Ingersoll as a loose constructionist. <laughs> um, but it also it, it made me think about a thing I read recently about how uh, uh, Democrats seem like just woefully ill-equipped to deal with Republicans 
uh, hmm. because they expect Republicans to follow rules and then the Republicans don't follow the rules and the Democrats say, but, but, but you can't do that. And, and that's kind of like, and it's exactly the that whole situation the, is exacerbated because it feels like the Republicans are the, the real rule lovers, the lovers of more black and white rules. And so until it comes to, yeah. themselves. to have them not right. follow the rules is more, uh, disorienting somehow. Hmm. But this is quite the mess. And they, so is Eschaton dead? If the kid, if nobody it, died, it might be. the game the, might have died. The computer's yeah. broken. They may have the lost all their data. They can't use the computer. How are they going to replace the $600,000? Oh, no, no, no. You, so the, the, the supercomputer is the one that's plugged in inside. And this is like a lightweight oh. portable computer that's connected okay. to it with a modem. Oh. Okay. So it does make me think that probably they have a backup of the data somewhere. Okay. But it's still a serious setback. And I also can't imagine the school will allow this game to continue now. I don't know. This it's it's going to get in the way of their ability to play tennis. Oh, if well, students get true. injured, then they can't play that's tennis. True. Oh that's true. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's true. Oh no. Yeah. And it's allowing a tactic. <laughs> it it allowed a tactic that is not allowed in a tennis game. Targeting mm, yes. intentionally yeah. targeting your opponent <laughs> with the ball. Yeah. Although I'm, you know, that happens too. So maybe it wasn't mm -hmm. so. Mm -hmm. Maybe it wasn't so out of character. Yeah. So I, I have a little treat for us here, which oh, is good. that like treats. Uh, this this scene, the scene of the Eschaton fiasco uh -huh. is the subject of a 2011 music video for a Decemberist song oh. called Calamity oh. Song. Oh. Uh, that was that was that was directed by Michael Schur, the co-creator of Parks and Recreation. Yeah. And the creator um, of The Good Place. Yeah. So I'm going to I'm going to paste in a link in our reference chat so everyone can watch this. And then I have a little bit of a couple just interview blurbs from the, the people involved about it. OK. There are a lot of details in here that refer to the book. So keep an eye out. Wow. OK. <laughs> I really enjoy that song. That's a good song. That was a good song. Um, I'm a little disappointed that the video doesn't end with Otis Lord's head in the computer monitor, although they were using a flat screen, so I don't think that would have worked. Yeah. Uh, you know what it made me think of, too? I mean, seeing these kids that just look... I, I picture the all the ETA kids looking a little off. Some, mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I don't picture mm -hmm. them looking like regular kids, honestly. Yeah. I don't know why. Maybe they do, uh, mostly. <laughs> but I, that's not how I picture them. Uh, and so seeing them makes me makes me think, you know, honestly, having the whole game devolve into this like crazy free for all actually would be a very kid thing to happen. Yes. Yeah. If it didn't get oh, yeah. So no, it makes violent, sense. If it didn't yeah. get so violently mean and like actually really hurting each other, but just mm -hmm. having it all like. It would be a very normal kid reaction to say, oh, no, the game is messed up. We're done for. We can't play it. This isn't even going to count because now, right. look, this right. is all messed up mm -hmm. and just start whacking balls at each other. Uh, yeah. So, but all the destruction that ended up happening isn't uh, necessarily kid-like. It's more almost yeah. more adult-like to yeah. carry it to such extremes. 
But so the- I have I have some quotes here from this is a, an all songs considered article about this video. Um, hmm. So first here I'm clo- I'm quoting uh, December's frontman Colin Malloy. He says. I wrote Calamity Song shortly after I'd finished reading Infinite Jest. Uh, The book didn't so much inspire the song itself, but Wallace's irreverent and brilliant humor definitely wound its way into the thing. And I had this funny idea... uh, that a good video for the song would be a recreation of the of ETA's round of Eschaton, basically a mm-hmm. global thermonuclear crisis recreated on a tennis court that's played around a third of the way into the book. Thankfully, after having a good many people balk at the idea, I found a kindred spirit in Michael Schur, a man with an even greater enthusiasm for Wallace's work than my own. With much adoration and respect to the seminal genius book, this is what we've come up with. I can only hope DFW would be proud. Um <laughs> And then uh, Michael Schur uh, continues or explains from his perspective, uh, the band's manager, Jason, contacted me through his brother with whom I went to college and asked me to direct a video they were planning that referenced a section of the book Infinite Jest. The Decemberists are my favorite band and Infinite Jest is my favorite book. This was tantamount to telling me I had just won two simultaneous Powerball lottery jackpots on my birthday, which was also Christmas. Thus, my my response to him was that although I was pretty sure this was an elaborate dream I was having, if it were in fact real, then yes, I would be interested. The production team on Parks and Recreation, many of whom are also big fans, volunteered their time and energy and we shot the whole thing in one day in Portland. Infinite Jest geeks, Infinite Jest geeks will hopefully enjoy all the specific references and small details, but we tried to design it so that those with no knowledge of the book at all would be able to understand and enjoy it as well. Right. So is there a list of references? I, I'm sure there is somewhere. I do not have one on me. Uh, a couple things that I noticed. So the the computer graphics seem seem very lovingly and detailed, uh, lovingly detailed. Um, with references to the operating system and Pink Two, uh, uh-huh. and a variety of other things, all right. the acronyms are there. Um, there's, if you look closely, so uh, Colin Malloy is in the role of Pemulus. He's wearing a yachting cap, and right. I'm not sure right. which band member it is sitting next to him. But the the guy immediately to his right is holding a NASA glass, like the one that Hal is spitting into. Oh. Um, it's uh, regrettable that, that all of the band members are conscious uh, because right. it's, uh, mm-hmm. is it Axford? No, not Axford. Uh, Axford. Struck. Yeah. Oh, Struck. Struck, who is oh, okay. uh, passed out. So ah. a little disappointing that it's not snowing because that's a great visual. They yeah. had rain instead. They had rain. Yeah, the rain is good. Because um, yeah. it's Portland. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're right. Yeah. Yeah, that was great. I was left wondering, so who will Pemulus have it in for now? Oh, yeah. Ingersoll? Lord? Uh, Probably both of them. Or all of the younger players? All of these, all of the kids that are playing? I mean, they pretty much all dove into the disintegrating mess. They've ruined his game. Mm-hmm. They have. And he really yeah. took pride in it being his game. Other question. So mm-hmm. I maybe for Vinny, because he's played tennis. Oh. Uh, do you suppose, so uh, like uh, we have Harry Potter with uh, Quidditch, right? Right. Uh, and people now play Quidditch, right? There are, pe- there right. are people that have Quidditch matches and 
obviously they don't fly on their brooms, but they they do. So I wondered, is this a thing too among tennis uh, people who play tennis to to play eschaton? I have not. Do you not... think eschaton matches are held? I think eschaton matches are held. I'm not sure. It's not a common thing with tennis players, though. But I, I think would that's imagine it would because... be. It would be good practice for a certain type of lob, like like dialing in your precision. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I wouldn't be surprised if eschaton matches ha- are being held, um, but. Yeah, and it would be good um, lopping practice and everything, but I've never heard of it happening. Hmm. Just, you know, just the general building dread. Yeah, mm-hmm. lots of dread. So much dread. dread. So this much is a book dread. about yeah. dread. Yep. It is. And now um, the other thing we know <laughs> is that this, that, so this game was on Interdependence Day Eve, was it? It's on Interdependence Day, I believe, the 8th. Indeed. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. So they're going to have all their festivities that they have on Interdependence it, yeah, Day. In the, their, yeah. me, their meals and with dessert and uh, 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 singing and mm-hmm. uh, this big this big to-do after this fiasco. This is going to throw a wrench into all that. Yeah. I mean, maybe. Otis P. Lord's Interdependence Day has been ruined. Yeah, but that's just one student. <laughs> I mean, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> the greater good, Andrew. Everybody else can have dessert. <laughs> More dessert for everyone else, yeah. I want it to be baked Alaska. I don't know why. Mm. That seems somehow appro- like like aesthetically appropriate. <laughs> I don't exactly, I can't articulate why. It's just a strong, strong gut feeling yeah. that you have. Yeah. Does anyone have anything they'd like to announce or plug? I would just like to say that I'm finding it harder to stop. <laughs> oh. reading which hmm. is a new thing for me with Infinite Jest, which... I was always so ready to put down, but I find myself worrying about these people that we leave in these precarious situations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you are interested in viewing my painting, you can check me out on Instagram at CardboardVV. If you want to read my short story, The Best of Our Mud, about Tier 2 Mud Monitor Bonanza Gloop. You can do that on my website, agingrick.com. And if you want to watch the presentation that I made about the 1969 chapel incident at Marquette University, you can visit my website at briannacrats.com. Yeah. Ooh. That sounds intriguing. And um, I don't have a website, but I would invite <laughs> all of you to think and and uh, think about supportively uh, all the teachers for preschool through 12 and also college level who are fretting about what school will look like this fall and mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, stand with teachers. 
Yes. Yeah. Stand with Raffi too. Raffi, if you ever, if you ever mm-hmm. like morally lost yes. in the world, just see what Raffi's yes. up to, and and that's probably a pretty good place to be. Yeah, you should oh, look okay. up Raffi and Yo-Yo Ma's new take on Baby Beluga, with their <laughs> added verse for those of you who may have grown up with Baby Beluga mm. song. Yeah, swirling well, that, in your head. That's good. That Raffi is good. Yeah, he's a uh, he. Uh, it's like a avowed socialist and, and t- oh. uh, talks a lot about uh, introducing kids to ideas of socialism and, and mm-hmm. thinking about people other than themselves. Oh, that's and so e- good. And, and eco- the, ecology, the too. Ecology. Yeah. And he's Canadian. He's okay. Canadian. Oh. <laughs> Next week, we'll be talking about pages 343 to 375. Our music is by David Nichols. You can listen to his podcast, The Land of Random, on Spotify. Thanks for listening. Now go peddle your linen someplace else. Uh, Greg was uh, delighted to hear that we were doing this podcast uh, for for reasons that (laughs) elude me, but he (laughs) thought it was very fun. Thank you.